You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 67. This is the show where we break down the tech in archaeology and give you our thoughts on how best to use it in the field. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. On today's show, we talk to author Joshua Fairfield. He's got a new book out with Cambridge University Press called Owned, Property, Privacy, and the New Digital Serfdom. Let's get to it. Okay, welcome to the show, everyone. Today, we're talking to Joshua Fairfield, author of Owned, Property, Privacy, and the New Digital Serfdom. Josh is a law professor at Washington and Lee University and an internationally recognized law and technology scholar. He specializes in digital property, electronic contract, big data privacy, and virtual communities. Welcome to the show, Josh. Hey, Paul. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming. Hey, so Josh, uh, why don't you fill in some gaps in that intro and tell us about your, what, what about your past and your experience led to the writing of this book, and then we'll talk about the book. Oh, wow. Well, it's a pretty mixed, <laughs> pretty checkered past. Um, let's see. I suppose one part of it is that I did a lot of development work for Rosetta Stone. Uh, my, my father and my uncle were the founders mm-hmm. of the Rosetta Stone Language Library, which is a language teaching software program. Um, and I started there in doing software development uh, and product development. Then, after a while, decided I wanted to go to law school. And what happened in the years after was that I found there was a real gap in what people were calling and asking me about, which is um, whether or not they owned anything in many of these online worlds uh, that they'd begun to care deeply about versus the what the companies were telling them, which is that they essentially had paid a lot of money to own nothing. <laughs> and that grew over a period of, I'd say, maybe about 10 or 15 years. Uh, my career kind of grew, but that, that stayed constant from you know, early MMOs, virtual worlds, through games like Second Life uh, and World of Warcraft, ending up in a discussion these days. I do a lot of work about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, but the the question remains the same. Do I really own anything uh, when there's nothing tangible for us to touch? Uh, what does it mean to own something you can't touch, feel, hold? And that's what led me to write this book. It, it's funny you mentioned Second Life. I jump in there probably once or twice a year just to check in and see what's going on over there. And- right, right, right. There's so many like abandoned properties over there and things because nobody took ghost town. <laughs> right. Well, that's what happens. You get this life cycle of these worlds. Some of the oldest ones are still open, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, I drop I drop in occasionally and see how the old neighborhood's doing. Nice, nice. All right. So, tell us a little about tell us a little bit about this book and who you who you wrote it for. Who's the audience for this book? Well, I think this book was written for anyone who uh, bought something. And maybe your cell phone, you own you own something, you, you buy an app or you buy a cell phone or you buy an MP3 or you buy a movie from Google Play or you buy access to it from Amazon. And then you wonder, do I really own it? Can mm-hmm. I control it? Can I, can I keep other people from intruding onto my smartphone or intruding into my laptop or um, monitoring me through my electronic devices, maybe my Fitbit, uh, or in my favorite uh, example, through, uh, I won't say my <laughs> anymore, but through an erotic massage device where the manufacturer <laughs> was was hijacking the data streams. They were going inside the person's property, and this is the most personal property. You know, lawyers talk about personal property. This is the most personal property you can imagine. And uh, hijacking date, time, frequency of use, um, that kind of thing. So, for anyone who's got a question about, hey, I paid for it. Do I really own it? 
that's what this book, that's who this book is for. You know, I recognize your examples from the book. I found that the way that you laid out the the story, essentially, of what we were uh, what you were writing about, with very concrete examples that we all know from the news, from our personal lives, and such, uh, really compelling. I thought that it was it was an interesting way to uh, to bring in the reader, somebody like myself who doesn't know a whole hell of a lot about law, uh, to, to 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 bring me along and and follow this path that you're laying out as you're uh, as you're telling the story in your book. Well, I think that's the important part. I wanted to con- just convince people, not not just to educate them. Uh, and to do that, you're going to need stories. And when people hear these stories, it I think it makes it real for them in a way that this sort of abstract idea, hey, intellectual property licenses have taken over and invaded the Internet of Things and have hijacked our property rights. That, that doesn't really get your blood going. But when you hear these stories about mm-hmm. people whose cars are shut down while they're driving on the interstate or the guy who had his uh, heart implant uh, data extracted by the police who then arrested him because he wasn't excited enough during yeah. a supposed incident. Um, those stories really get people engaged. It's interesting to me. I I want to frame for the audience, you know, we're going to talk about, I, I guess, what this book is about and, and why you wrote it and things like that as we're doing. And then in the second segment, we'll relate this back to archaeology. So have no fear. Yeah. This will come back. But it's interesting. Uh, I like the... <laughs> personal pleasure device example as a, <laughs> as an example of this because very specifically because I'm I'm kind of a firm believer and you do get into this a little bit in this book but I want to hear you you know tell our audience about it if if they're taking the data uh, from whatever device now some people I guess could use things for nefarious purposes I don't know what that would be in that case but if they're taking the data in order to make the device better. That's always a common argument that you hear. They're taking the data in order to improve your experience, improve the user experience. It's your personal data, but they're trying to improve your personal experience. How do you respond to that? Because that's that's usually what you hear. Right. Um, well, one answer is that that's simply not true because <laughs> it's just not. So look, if they wanted to take the data to improve your experience, all they would have to do is make an enforceable promise. And it would be enforceable under current law. All they'd have to do is put it in their end user license agreement saying, we agree not to convey your data to any third parties. We're simply going to use it to improve your experience. But -hmm. they're hiding something else behind that, which is that they want to convey this data to other parties. I'll give you a great example of this. Weasel words that got used recently. Um, Roombug kind of got caught out because uh, they revealed that the Roomba vacuum cleaners are mapping your house. And they very much want to share those maps with other commercial parties. They got caught on this. And so then they sort of fostered a wave of um, blog posts saying, oh, we were misunderstood. We'll never sell the data about the inside of your home. Mm -hmm. Uh, What they meant by we'll never sell it, though, is we absolutely will share it with our commercial partners who very much Mm -hmm. want to know the shape of the inside of your home largely because they need to know how to maximize the effectiveness of tracking beacons deployed through your home. So, for example, one common tracking beacon is um, uh, your smart television makes a a high-pitched noise that comes out during an advertisement. Your phone picks that up and it's an easy way for someone to realize you know where you are in the house and what you're actually watching as you're walking through your living room what you're paying attention to and it you can optimize that by knowing the shape of the room so that would be one sort of core example of how they want to use this sort of data um, 
The bottom line is they absolutely do not want to just use this to make the best possible experience. Sure, they do use it that way, but that's mm -hmm. not the reason for the over-extraction of the data. They're extracting it because they want to advertise with it and they want to share it with commercial partners who want to advertise with it. So is the ultimate problem here that they're not asking to do that? They're just doing it? If they asked and we volunteered the, the data about the inside of our home, that would be generally okay? Well, asking gets complicated, and when you ask a law, when you ask a lawyer, you know what's the legal standard for contractual consent. You know I, what I don't want to do is get up on my soapbox. I'll just tell you, there's mm -hmm. an ongoing problem with asking, because the way a lawyer sees, oh, I asked, is by burying the request for your information on page 43 <laughs> uh, in you know paragraph 125, subparagraph C. <laughs> And then what you did, of course, is you said, yeah, 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 whatever, scroll to the bottom and clicked, I accept. <laughs> right. Now, really, does that allow me to enforce every single clause in that contract, including some clauses that people put in for a joke? My, my, my favorite was a UK firm who, who <laughs> put in there, um, you know, we now can claim your immortal soul. Um, <laughs> or, or, or another company who was trying to get trying to figure out if people actually read these things, uh, put in a bounty, said, look, we'll give you a couple hundred dollars if you just call this phone number. Um, nice. and, and nobody called for like months. Um, or, you know, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Chief Justice Roberts, has said, this is a real problem. Law doesn't really know how to handle the fact that nobody reads these things. And in fact, nobody should. Uh, it would be a waste of everybody's time and energy for you to read them. And yet people do things like sneak consent to monitor your bedroom, your bathroom, and your living room uh, into these kinds of contracts. We're just going to have to come up with a new way of talking about this kind of consent. Um, we're we're going to have to route it not through law, but through our devices. Specifically, the way for me to stop people from listening in is not going to be asking the, refusing a contract that they present to me because among other things i just bought this shiny new device i powered on mm -hmm. for the first time if i don't hit i accept the device turns into a paperweight mm -hmm. so i'm gonna have to, i'm gonna have to turn into i'm gonna have to hit i accept in order to use the device i just bought i think what we're gonna have to do is say fine the device does listen in on you but we're gonna have to give you the own the traditional ownership right the ability to modify it and to exclude others that's the basic power you get as the owner of something is you get to kick people other people off of it you know the sort of typical get off my lawn kind of response <laughs> uh, and if we can give people the ability to modify hack their devices in order to exclude these intruding eyes and ears we can kind of seize the eyes and ears of the internet of things and sort of turn those eyes and ears away from us at least that's my proposal in the book there are lots of other ways of doing mm -hmm. it yeah i'm one of the worst about that if there was an app that actually let me scroll faster to the bottom of that agreement so right, i can hit right, agree right right, like right i right, would right. install it and i would agree to their agreement <laughs> exactly no i think exactly. i work for people <laughs> they need me to install something on their computer and i do it and i scroll to the bottom and hit agree and right they Absolutely. couldn't care less that i'm yeah. agreeing to some contract for them uh i can't imagine that that's enforceable but i guess it is oh absolutely it is Mm -hmm. Yeah, now I just willingly gave Apple several models of my face, too, with this right. new iPhone 10. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I, I, we're, again, we're going to bring this back to archaeology in a minute, but this is so fascinating to me because I, I just want, since I know time travel is not really possible in the way that it is in the movies, and I know that cryogenics isn't quite where it is to quite thaw me out when I want to be thawed out, 
I want technology to get here as fast as possible. And yes, I'm, I'm really stuck in a hard place where I, I also don't want my data just used for whatever purpose. I want to control where that goes and what happens with it. But how, how do we move forward with this with, uh, and, and still see the advances that we want to see in, in the speed that we want to see them? Because as, as, as consumers of technology in the world, almost universally, we all want the new things and we want them now. But, well, wait a minute. You can't do it that way. 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 But give me all the things now. Right. You know, and, right. and the ways to make those things now and good and 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 a great version one out of the box is to get as much data as you can before you start. So, right. you know, what's the what's the answer here? Give me all the answers, Josh. Ha! Well, huh, boy, all, <laughs> all the answers. I hope you have some all time. No. Um, <laughs> let's see. So, I think the the one thing is that there's a bit of a misconception, especially in Silicon Valley right now that if they can't take all of the data without properly asking for it, and if they give users controls to really manage the data, not like Facebook controls, which are designed to make sure that you never properly get your privacy settings set up correctly, <laughs> right? That, 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 they're quite careful yeah. to make sure that, and, and if you ever do get it figured out, they change them. Right. Um, but, but there's the sort of misunderstanding that giving people the actual ability to do things like turn off the location, the GPS locator on your phone, somehow would lead to the collapse of uh, human machine civilization as we know it. It's just not true. <laughs> giving people control actually makes them more confident in using the device. So a, a recent Pew survey said that something like 90% of Americans feel like their data is being extracted without their permission and being used in ways that they can't control and they don't like it. I mean, I kind of tie this to the early days of the internet when people really weren't willing to do business uh, online mm -hmm. because they were worried about identity theft. They really, you know, you used to sort of get advice, hey, don't ever use a credit card online. Now, these days, that would make no sense at all. We've got pretty solid protections for people who use online payment systems, and people are confident that they can do it. So the internet showed up, it gave us enormous value. We needed to put some protections in place to make sure that people felt confident doing that. And I do feel like right now, for very specific reasons of developmental tech, um, most specifically the fact that we just need epic amounts of data to feed artificial intelligences uh, in order to, to feed the machine learning algorithms, that there's this broad sense that we should just gather all the data all the time because then the machine learning algorithm can ingest it, can learn to make more and more eerily accurate predictions. But we're giving up some serious baby with that bathwater because people are feeling more and more like their devices are spying on them. Even though I'm supposed to own my smartphone, I now have to worry about whether it's listening in on me or whether or not somebody's turned the camera on or, um, you know, my favorite, the fact that the government can simply get access to all of our stored text messages if they're not encrypted by just simply going to our provider, our internet traffic, so on and so forth. People are in a sense, limiting their use of the technology. The technology is getting to us slower because we constantly have to try to do what we can. We're sort of left to our own devices to defend our privacy. And if there were some reasonable rules of the road, we would feel far more confident and the technology could be put mm -hmm. into actual use far more quickly. 
Okay. Well, I, I'm personally not worried about the government because the uh, we know their servers are from the 80s and they're rapidly filling up with Trump's tweets. So right, right, that's, right. <laughs> you know, that's superseding everything else. Um, <laughs> that's that's got to be archives for the record. <laughs> Library of Congress, the, tw- the tweets. That's right. The tweet, second. Oh the tweet archive. Could you imagine mm-hmm. somebody's job is to like archive that stuff and make sure it doesn't go anywhere? Right, um, right, right, yeah. right, right. All right. Well, leading up to our discussion that we're going to have in the next segment here shortly, um, let's talk about big data a little bit, because um, I know you mentioned that in your bio. and There's a little bit of discussion of that in the book. And uh, and by big data, we mean uh, we mean, I guess when we talk about ownership and we're collecting, you know, volumes and volumes and volumes of data, terabytes of data, petabytes of data, whatever the, you know, size you want to use. Right. And then and then making inform inferences from those data and saying, okay, from this I learned this, from this I learned this. How do we talk about ownership in that standpoint? Well, it's really hard. And yeah. in the book I draw a really clear line. I think that for various reasons, it's not possible for us to say that all information about us is our property. Among, let's try here at, at my local institution, Washington and Lee. Let's, let's say that students are of the opinion that I'm a terrible electronic commerce professor. So <laughs> it, the word's got to get out about that in order for the market to sort of handle it, right? My, if I'm mm-hmm. really bad at it, Fewer and fewer students should take my classes. I can't own the fact that I'm a terrible e-commerce professor. I hope I'm not. But if I were, I can't own that fact. I can't assert that kind of control over it. But what we can do is we can own certain kinds of information and certain kinds of objects, like both digital objects and physical objects. So we can reduce the amount of information that the big data algorithm has about us by controlling who can intrude on our smartphone, our Fitbit, our personal erotic massage device, um, our, our, our smart watch, etc. We can limit the amount of data that it can gather about us. And that is enormously beneficial to us. Because this data is being used for advertising. That's what they're feeding the machine learning algorithms mostly to do is to figure out what you'll buy and the most that you'll pay for it. It's kind of, if you're playing, if you're trying to negotiate, if you're going on Amazon, you're trying to buy assets um, and they know everything about you. One of the things they really are trying to predict is how much you'll pay for it. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like playing economic poker with somebody who can see your cards. In Mm -hmm. that sense, it's really useful to be able to Tell your devices, you work for me, not for them. Knock it off. Stop gathering all this data about me to feed to the algorithms because then it, the algorithms know a lot less about you and you're able to do what economists call get more of the consumer surplus instead of them extracting the, the maximum that you would be willing to pay for it. Instead, you, you pay a little bit less than the maximum you'd actually be willing to pay, which means that you're pretty happy. You, you feel like you got a little bit of a good deal instead of every deal being, yeah, I paid the absolute maximum that I'd be willing to pay. Mm-hmm. So I think, that's, I think that's the basic part of it is that we can own smart devices and we can own digital objects like movies and music, those are things that are similar to other things that we own. But we can't own all information about us. The best we can do is control the devices that are spying on us so that we don't have 
all that data to feed to the algorithms. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a great place to stop this segment. We're going to come back in the second segment and relate this back to archaeology and the way we work in the field. In the meantime, uh, check out arpanet.com forward slash members. Give us all your data and we'll send you a t-shirt. So that'll be great. We'll send you a t-shirt and a coffee mug if you just give us all your data about yourself and then pay us every month. <laughs> all right. We'll be, we'll be back in just a second. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay, we are back. And we're going to now take this conversation in an archaeological turn, as we should. And just to help frame the conversation a little bit. So, Josh, we as archaeologists, traditionally, um, you know, we record information and, and quite often up until maybe even just a few years ago, that was almost exclusively on paper. We mm-hmm. collected information about people. And I think when you talk about a data security th- sort of thing and, and ownership and things like that, when we're collecting information on paper, site forms, reports, things like that, that's easy to just hand back over to somebody and say, here, we gathered this information. You as the owner of the property or the cultural the cultural property, like a Native American group or something like that, you can have all these boxes of paper that we collected and recorded. Um, right. And there you go. But nowadays... Uh, I mean, my company is completely digital. We record everything on iPads. Everything goes into the cloud after that. And then if somebody were to actually say, well, I want all the all the data you've collected, it's nearly impossible for them to actually get that. They can legally enforce me not using it, but it's it's impossible for me to actually give them that because there's realistically copies laying all over the place. And to take that a step farther, um, when we talk about ownership again, we archaeologists are inadvertently taking physical things and putting them into the digital world. For example, if you uh, drop something on the ground right now, you know, it's your piece of trash, you used it. Let's say you drop your cell phone on the ground right now. And in 50 years, if the laws don't change, I'm going to record it as part of an archaeological site. And I'm going to learn everything I can about it. And right now, you know, we use instruments to dive inside of archaeologists. You know, we, you know, people use uh, uh, all kinds of machines to see what's inside these things. What are they made of? All that stuff. Well, when we get into the digital age, who's to say we're not going to have a way to just crack open that iPhone and see what's in it digitally that remained after 50 years of sitting on the ground in the desert? Who owns that information? Do you still own it if you're still alive? Or, you know, how do we how do we work out these questions? Are these questions we're going to have to work out and try to answer, I guess, is my is my bigger question on that. Or is this something that we're kind of letting slide right now? <laughs> well, I think that's that's a fantastic question because this is the same question that sort of dogs law, right? Property is easy as long as it's physical, as long as it's something you can see and touch. But as soon as we start talking about having property interests and things that you that are intangible, um, suddenly courts tend to lose the plot. 
they they understand it for certain things like your bank account. You know, you can't touch that, but it's mm-hmm. clearly your property. Um, or your stocks and bonds. You know, you can't touch them, but they're clearly your property. Or or even the ownership interest in your house. Right? That's actually just a piece of information filed at the local county courthouse. So this relationship between information and property, I think, is at the center of a lot of what we do. That's as close as possible to archaeology. You know, in legal in legal cases, often we're trying to reconstruct events, situations, contexts, and we're going to go deep into the evidence. We're going to go into the objects, but then we're also going to be mostly interested not in the objects at all, but in what the objects mean, in information about the objects. That's going to be the source of the forensic analysis, as anyone who's watched one of these, you know, sort of CSI, infinite CSI shows um, can attest, right? What you're interested in is the information about the objects. And I think that's a place where that law and archaeology have a deep commonality. We've traditionally focused on physical stuff. Our interest has always been in information. And the rules, as you suggest, the rules about who can control or who owns that information once it's been freed from physicality, that's not at all clear. And that's one of the major reasons why people have gotten away with so much uh, in terms of getting on to people's digital and smart property uh, because we don't have clear rules. You know, we, we do have clear rules for my lawn. Get off it. We don't have clear rules for my smartphone, right? I, it's not easy mm-hmm. for me to say, get off my smartphone the way I can yell, get off my lawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's real interesting because uh, we do have – we do have cases throughout the past. This is why we have NAGRA, NAGPRA, the Native American Graves uh, mm-hmm. Repa- Repatriation and Protection Act. Um, mm-hmm. That that exists because Protection. Native Americans wanted their things uh, turn, returned back to them or not affected at all. And, and you know, it, it really, they had to start somewhere. So the logical place to start was with graves and grave goods, right? Uh, right. But, but in reality, if you work on actual tribal land, tribal property, and you do some sort of archaeological uh, survey or excavation or something there, the property owner, who in this case uh, would be the Native Americans, they, they have ownership to all those things. So if you're turning in a report to somebody else or whatever, all the artifacts, all the data analysis goes back to them. But that's not always the case in all circumstances. Like I, I work a lot on public land out here in Nevada where you know it's just the quote government that owns the land but there's you know sometimes dozens of tribal groups that claim ownership over the land from an ancestral standpoint so we record this information and they're all screaming for it but nobody has a legitimate claim to it as far as the law right. is concerned you right. know uh, we also have the the clear issue especially with uh, with native americans in the us um, about issues of consent you know, so yes, mm-hmm. uh, who has consented to revealing certain data? You know, as archaeologists, we might excavate a grave, for example, and really want to take DNA from it, from from the bones in it, or we might want to do uh, you know microscopic analysis of the teeth to get a sense of what the food sources were. But the person, you know, uh, this is a skeleton; it used to be a human being, has never ever consented, <laughs> never had the opportunity, and didn't right. know we're going to come around <laughs> three thousand years later uh, to analyze them. So uh, it gets into some ethical issues as well that I don't know that there's a clear legal uh, way of, of answering, but there, there is in the case of NAGPRA. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's interesting that you would mention DNA. I, I find a, a strong parallel there between – so as a recent development in, in legal forensics, which is not – 
at all the same discipline as archaeology, but uses a lot of the same techniques and has some of the same goals. Um, there's been a wave of people who have been freed from prison because their DNA proves that they are innocent. There's been a, a whole range of these innocence projects that have cropped up because we've done these tests on um, on their DNA, and it just absolutely shows that they were not the perpetrator. But here's the thing. More and more, the kind of evidence that would show that you're innocent of the crime might be entirely digital. It might be the GPS location information from your phone, which shows that you were a Dairy Queen at the time of the incident, right? Um, it might be um, it might be Vanguard style data taken from license plates reader license plate readers as you were driving down the road. One guy got off the got his proved his innocence because he could show that he was at home posting on Facebook uh, at the time of the incident. So what we're beginning to do is care about digital artifacts in a way that we've previously reserved for caring about DNA evidence. Yeah, that's, uh, that's so interesting. Um, Paul, I think some of this kind of leads into what you were saying on the break um, about artifacts. Uh, speaking of artifacts, do you want to kind of bring that up again and, and, and frame it? Yeah, well, it kind of strikes me uh, listening to the conversation here that, uh, that archaeologists traditionally are almost uh, like the the bad guys in this, uh, like the Googles and the Facebooks and the Apples, uh, in that we are used to extracting information sometimes without consent from uh, our subjects, our subjects being uh, the people in the past who left the archaeological evidence for us. Uh, but what I was talking about at break was just that reading the book, again, fascinating, it was pulling me through uh, I kept on coming back to this notion of property and uh, and how property law has gotten, I don't know if corrupted is the right word for it, but it's how I kept on feeling like it with uh, intellectual property and, uh, yes. and uh, copyright law. And as archaeologists, we're trained in dealing with objects and dealing with materials. All the data that we deal with... Uh, start with material, physical objects, and then we're used to extracting those. And then we've gotten to the point in the field where it's no longer good enough just to get the uh, the, the fancy statue, the beautiful pot from, from an excavation. We now care much less about the, the physical object as we do about the information that we can extract from that, uh, particularly contextual information, where and where it was found, what site, what level, which grave, uh, on and on. Uh, and this has been a progress over, you know, 150 years of our field. But it, to me, just uh, it was an interesting counterpoint, maybe. I'm not sure if counterpoint even is the right word, but it was, it was an interesting contrast to the way that, uh, that the legal definitions of property, especially as they affect our devices now, have, uh, have, uh, have changed over the last, you know, 30 to 40 years, the time frame that you mostly cover in your book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. One, of course, major difference is that the people who generated the information in the archaeological context um, weren't, for the most part, weren't doing so with an idea toward monetizing that information um, much later on. Whereas software developers build 
software in order to mm-hmm. get data that does help them uh, build an empire, make a profit, however it is that you're that you're likely to do it. And that's one of the reasons why maybe we haven't seen the same corruption uh, in archaeology as we've seen in intellectual property, where the rules of intellectual property get expanded and expanded and expanded until they've essentially taken over. You know, my one story from the the book is how John Deere, the tractor company, has essentially told farmers, no, sorry, you don't really own your own tractors. Um, You're merely licensing the software inside them. And that's kind of where Mm -hmm. we are now, where the intellectual property is everything, is what you know, I don't know if you've ever seen one of these modern tractors or, or um, you know, one of these modern yeah, harvesters. It looks like Darth Vader's bathroom. I mean, it's just amazingly, <laughs> com- it's amazingly complicated. Um, but you need software to run it, and the thing's essentially a brick without the software. And so I think mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why, at least in the property context, things have gotten so badly, ro- so so badly out of control. Is that the manufacturers are using intellectual property in order to um, for a specific profit agenda. Um, I wonder maybe the maybe the goals of people who are trying to control the information attached to archaeological artifacts um, might be quite different. And I wouldn't be surprised if they were opposed to monetization, if they had other goals for the sharing of that data other than to turn it into a positive stock price movement. Well, see, that's that's the interesting thing about archaeology is there are people, there's plenty of people trying to illegally monetize, but they don't think sure. they're doing it illegally. You know, you get you, you get so oh, many people that are um, metal detectorists, and I'm not going to slam metal detectors right now because there's a lot of people that are doing metal detecting ethically and in the right circumstances. But a lot of times they're just out there in a field, especially in the on the uh, East Coast where it's Civil War, you know, there's been people there for several hundred years with their metal objects. They're pulling stuff out of the ground. And they just, there's not even a thought in their head that they can't just take that, put it in their pocket and take it home. They don't think they're stealing. They don't think they're doing anything. They just literally think that nobody owns it. And that's a huge problem, I think. Um, And I was thinking about that as we move further and further into a time period where, um, like I I mentioned before, I don't know if you're aware of this, but anything over 50 years old is our cutoff date. Typically, Mm -hmm. as a cultural resource management archaeologist, we record everything over 50 years old. So Mm -hmm. as we start having things that are more digital that are 50 years old, who, if somebody hasn't, I guess, claimed digital ownership over that for a really long time, can an archaeologist come along and record it? And what does that even mean? You know, who owns that if, if it's just sitting out, let's say, on the Internet and nobody's claimed it or paying for it or it's on a server somewhere and we find it and now it's an archaeological site? <laughs> right. Absolutely. Or, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm sure that certain people, certain famous people's smartphones are going to be of enormous interest in oh, yeah. a few decades. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I don't know how to... Uh, how to answer those questions, quite frankly. Um, and I don't know if anyone's even trying to really answer them because we're still trying to answer, like you said, what do we do with our smartphone? I mean, even just the, the most recent case of the, the shooter in Texas there, again, the, the issue's coming up that they can't get into his phone. It's right. completely locked down. You know? Right, right. So, and the question of who owns that sort of thing is going to be a direct interface between my discipline and yours, Absolutely. right? Because mm-hmm. the person who's going to claim ownership of it is going to be the heir of the estate of the original person that owned it. They're going to assert <laughs> a property claim and they're going to assert that against 
the argument that this is now uh, that this is now in in many critical ways in the public domain that this is a matter of history of archaeology now it's not a matter of personal property ownership and those two those two claims I would expect would come directly into conflict. If your great great grandfather's cell phone surfaces, and you would like certain family legends to not kind of be brought out into the into the public sphere, I could imagine direct kinds of conflicts, especially given the methods that we need to get into these devices, which are um, often password permissions, often other permissions that courts have held do pass on to the heirs of the estate under certain circumstances. We saw this in mm-hmm. the Gulf War when soldiers would unfortunately not come back and their their mm-hmm. families would make claims on their social media accounts uh, as as property, as property of their son or daughter uh, that passed to them under the under, under the doctrines of descent and distribution under the will, essentially. Right. Does that work? Like with social media accounts, have they changed their license agreements to say that that works? Or ha. Well, so interesting. There was there was basically a big fight. The the um, the social media accounts said it was these were just contracts between them and the person who had passed away. Um, mm-hmm. The family said that there this is property that passes to us, um, and many of the. Many of the different net social network sites like Facebook actually worked out kind of a half and half deal um, where they would say, you know, first of all, we would let you give your passwords to someone under mm-hmm. digital legacy. They're actually dig- digital legacy companies that hold mm-hmm. the keys to these things so that they can be passed on to your family. But also then um, they do things like have these in memoriam pages or these remembrance pages that they've worked up. And they've also got a system for maintaining. Um, Facebook accounts of some people who have passed away under kind of a guardianship that, that sort of one person acts as a curator of another person's account. They they kind of drew up what they thought their customers would want as sort of a hybrid um, between you own it and uh, yet the person just simply has a contractual right to it. Mm-hmm. Wow. That gets complicated. It's like not going to get more complicated really fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't die. Basically, right. that's not yeah. don't die. Yeah. Uh, so in the last few minutes here, what, without giving any specific legal advice, of course, um, what do you, what what is the direction archaeologists could go with all this digital information that we're recording? We have to put it somewhere. I think people are wanting to record things digitally because they know paper sure. isn't the way to go anymore. Uh, what what can we do? Where can we put it? What can we do with it? What kind of formats can we put it in or something? I don't even know how sure. to ask the question to help protect it, I guess, from <laughs> people who shouldn't see it or steal it. Let me uh, just add on to that. that you know, doctors are covered under uh, under HIPAA laws, right? That, that what they can and cannot reveal and to whom they can right. and cannot reveal it. Uh, right. Archaeologists... Uh, oftentimes are legally uh, required to give certain information to certain people and prohibited from giving it to the general public, for example. Uh, right. So I think that there's probably a certain amount of, of case law out there already that, that would cover us, even if it's maybe seen as less critical as, as people's health records. Right. Let me, this is a bit of a technical answer and legal answer, but I think it's super important because it, ties together a bunch of different ideas that we have talked about over the past bit. So one thing you can really do is get people to sign up 
people don't care about revealing half their information to Facebook anyway. There's no compelling reason why people can't sign up now and say, you know what, it's fine with me if in the far, far future my information is of archaeological interest, um, go ahead and use it. And there's a way to record things like that permanently that ties into another set of things that I talk about in the book, which would be one mm -hmm. of the cryptocurrency blockchains, like the Bitcoin blockchain. It's possible to write certain kinds of information into these blockchains, and it can never essentially come back out of that blockchain. It's recorded permanently. It's, it's as if there's another strata. They actually use the technology that works almost in the same in a geological sense. You, what, what happens is your statement that you wrote to the blockchain gets layered under different layer after layer after layer of cryptography um, until it becomes indelible, it becomes immutable, and, and no one can get it back out. And the second thing that, that this responds to um, in terms of recording people's consent and in terms of being able to reveal certain kinds of information and not other kinds of information is that encryption does a great job of letting you selectively reveal information. And here's why. You can put information into these public blockchain databases, and anyone can verify that that information is true. But without the relevant cryptographic keys, they can't necessarily see the underlying information itself. They can see that what you're stating is verifiably true. In the case of Bitcoin, it would be that you know Mary gives a Bitcoin to Fred. They can see that that's true, but there are certain elements of the transaction they may not be able to see because they don't have certain cryptographic keys. And there's a great experiment that's running right now um, in Delaware in which they're they're melding public and private records in the same distributed database. Um, some of them are available to be verified by the public, and some of them are entirely intended for the company or with for a select sub-audience that need access to it. And that's perfectly possible to do. So I think one thing that we might be able to do is just kind of like the SETI at home initiatives where people download um, a sort of a, a, a little thing to run on their home computer that helps with the search for extraterrestrial intelligence or whatever, um, is, to, is to enlist people's interest in signing on and sort of becoming the, the archaeological equivalent of an organ donor. Just sort of check the box and it's fine with me if my information gets used and that permission gets recorded in a permanent cryptographic record, almost like recording their permission in a permanent permanent geologic record. Um, and then anyone who comes along later and examines the blockchain uh, of the early 21st century is going to be able to verify that that person had given consent at that time. It's interesting that you brought up blockchain. Um, I'll just mention there's uh, an organization that I'm still trying to work out how we're going to interview them, but it's called Kapu, K-A-P-U. And it's an archaeological uh, coin, basically, uh, and it's ha. developed around blockchain, and they're trying to get this off the ground right now, presumably to secure data in exactly the way that you just said. Yeah, well, that's so, fantastic. I had no idea they existed, yeah. but two thumbs up. I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's this to, there's this designed at the moment to uh, to specifically to uh, to protect artifacts mm -hmm. that that we know of, right? To to give a mm -hmm. uh, I think so, and to try to tamp down on looting and the illicit antiquities market. So it's not looking for, forward like your proposal is, but uh, but the whole notion of blockchains for helping archaeologists is actually uh, kind of current right now. And there's no reason yeah. that you couldn't record 
you know, you can record whatever you want in hashed form on a blockchain. So there's no reason you couldn't record those forms of digital consent at the same time that you're recording a, a sort of a public supply chain of artifacts to make sure that these mm-hmm. things don't just go missing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we are just about out of time, Josh. Is there anything that you wanted to mention uh, about the book that uh, that we didn't get to ask you about? Gracious. Um, I think the basic. <laughs> I, I think you've you've asked me pretty much everything that we've that we've found worth talking about. Let's let's, <laughs> let's leave it there before I get up on my law professor soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. I was asking you for closing remarks. I guess uh, is that what it's called in a courtroom? Right, I don't even right, know. Right, anyway, um, close it out. Yeah. Close, yeah. So, okay. Uh, well, thanks for joining us and be sure to pick up your copy of Owned from Cambridge University Press via the link in the show notes. And that'll be at arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeotech forward slash 67. Thanks, Josh, for coming on the show. Thanks for coming. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Hey, podcast listeners, do you find yourself wondering what the latest tablet or smartphone could do for your business? Wonder what GPS to pair with your device? Just trying to figure out how to go digital in the field without breaking the bank and or making a bad investment? Or did you find a technology company to work with, but just aren't sure the questions you need to ask during the initial conversation? Well, you're not alone. There are literally thousands of tech combinations out there, and it can be really tough finding the right one for your business and your workflow. My name is Chris Webster, and I've been working in CRM since 2005, and I've been a tech enthusiast my entire life. I spend my time trying to figure out how to make archaeology more efficient, both technologically and financially. No one is going to give you a big pile of money to do whatever you want with, so you have to make the most of what you have. The right gear can mean the difference between zero margins on that next project and an employee benefits package. That's where DigTech Concierge comes in. Let us be your technology guru. Whether you have just a few questions or want us on retainer 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, we're here to help. With years of experience, tens of thousands of acres of survey done completely digitally, and many, many people trained, DigTech is your tech BFF just waiting to guide you through this process now and through the inevitable changes to come. Should you hold on to those tablets or upgrade? What about the new operating system? Will it crash your apps or can you go ahead and do it? We know the answers and can guide you to a profitable year. Go to www.digtech-llc.com slash tech dash concierge to book a consultation or book us for the year. The yearly retainer includes unlimited calls and support and company training on software and gear. That's digtech-llc.com slash tech-concierge. And concierge is C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E. To get going and go digital today. Call us before you make any decisions. We've been there before. Okay, we are back, and this is the app of the day segment, uh, the app of the every two weeks segment, and uh, I'll kick it off. Uh, I was just kind of looking around. Um, I actually found, I don't know how I saw this, but I saw a website uh, just a few weeks ago that had, hey, here are some great apps that are usually pricey or cost something, but are now free. So I was like, all right, that sounds great. Let me check that out. And um, I checked out this one called, and it, it was written by people from Thailand. So some of the language in there is, um, well, written by people from Thailand who English isn't their first language. So take that with a grain of salt. Usually when I see an app like that, I'm like instantly questioning it because I don't know, I feel like it's a little bit racist. There's developers in other countries and they're putting stuff out, but sometimes I don't know what it is, but I see some, some very good ones. In fact, some very good ones. Right. Um, so anyway, mm-hmm. this app is called safety Photo plus video, and it's photo with the plus sign video if you're looking for it on the App Store. And this, unfortunately, is only available for iOS. And I looked at the price, and it was a, it was a B with a line through it and 69. Um, turns out, I was like, 69 B? What the hell is this? 
Turns out that's Thai Bots, I think it's pronounced, B-H-A-T-S, which is about $2. So the app is probably $1.99. I did the conversion right now. It said 208 my guess is it's one ninety nine in the App Store. Um, unfortunately, I, I should have wrote that down the minute I downloaded it because uh, it says it said free on my side. And then once you own the app, unless you sign out and go to the App Store, you can't actually see how much they cost because it says just open because you already mm-hmm. own it. Anyway, what this is for, speaking of data security, I thought this was a good one to have on today's episode. Um, you open the app and it instantly asks you to set a passcode for the application. And the interesting thing about that is this is one of the the really kind of neat things I that I've never seen before in an application. It asks you how you want to set the passcode. You can use a dial like on a safe um, or, or like a, you know, like a combo lock. You can use a dial like that to set a four-digit passcode. You can use a pattern. So the way a lot of Android phones open is, you know, you just run your fingers across a, the numbers in a certain pattern. Or you can just do your traditional keypad passcode lock. Now, one thing I did try is I just typed in one, two, three, four on the dial, and I did one going to the right, two going to the left, three going to the right, and four going to the left. And then when it asked me to confirm that password, I just did them all to the right. I just did one, two, three, four, and that still worked. So really, it's just looking for the numbers, and I think they could have added another level there, but actually making it like a combo lock and making it sure the direction matters, mm-hmm. you know? One, two, three, four, um, that's the same as my luggage. But- <laughs> oh, come on, baseball reference. Excellent. I love it. I love it. I love it. I know you got to have a Spaceballs reference. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, there's two ways to get photo and video into the application. And first off, uh, it has it has a couple default albums on there, and you can create your own album. And then you can put another level of security on there. You can add a passcode that's different from the passcode to get into the app into that album. And it asks, and again, it asks you which which of the three methods do you want to use. So it sounds like you can create any number of albums and have different styles of passcodes and excuse me and different passcodes on each one. So the way that you add stuff into it though is a little weird. Um, you're probably going to be, uh, I guess tempted to just import photos from your camera roll first and put them in there. While you can do that, you can bring stuff in. One of the weird things I noticed about it is it doesn't actually let you see the entire uh, camera roll, only the stuff that you've already put into albums, which is a little strange. I'm not sure why you don't have access to the whole camera roll. Um, But it's only the stuff that you've actually put into albums within your camera roll Mm -hmm. on your device. But then, uh, confusingly, probably because it doesn't have access, once you bring that into the app, it doesn't actually delete it out of your camera roll. You'd have to go back then and delete it out of your camera roll to have it actually be secure within that application. And, uh, but the other way you can do it is you can just take the photos inside the app. And it has a fairly rudimentary camera. So if you're looking for a bunch of bells and whistles, you're not going to get it. But if you were just taking all your pictures, like let's say you're out doing site photography uh, for archaeological sites, you could create a new album for each site if you wanted to and then add just drop all the pictures within that album. Again, this is really kind of rudimentary. I'm not actually even recommending this. I'm just pointing it out in case somebody finds it and they're looking for a secure way to, to uh, secure like sensitive archaeological data by, in the realm of photos and videos and things like that. Um, I think the best thing to do, honestly, is just have a passcode on your device because as the FBI finds out every time we have a mass shooter incident, nobody can get into that. They have to hire like high-level hackers and no one can get into the passcode on your device if you make it secure enough or you have a fingerprint ID or you have face print ID on the new phones or something like that. That's probably good enough. Um, You know, it's just, it's not something I would worry about. So anyway, 
this is they've got a free version and then they've got a pro version. The pro version more than likely just removes ads. It doesn't look like it adds any real functionality. They have in-app purchases, which mm-hmm. usually that's just remove the ads for $2, you know, $1.99, something like that. Um, but that's pretty much it. There's a number of apps out there like that that will help you secure things within the application. But I would just caution you to, uh, you know, like all password situations, don't go crazy with coming up with a whole different passwords unless you've got some sort of password convention you can remember or some sort of secure password manager that you can store that stuff in. And I'm also not sure if this will, because of the unique way that they have you input the password, if a password manager would even pop up as an option for inserting that password, you know, like like 1Password or something like that, if that would actually activate within that application. I don't think it would from the looks of it. So... Anyway, that's my app. Um, it's called Safety Photo Plus Video, available for iOS, and it's about $2. So, um, yeah, that's Great. it. Paul, what do you got? So, uh, what I've got is, uh, it's actually, it's a Mac app. Um, the name has app in the, it has the app in the name of the website. So, uh, so even though this isn't an app uh, on your device, uh, I'm still going to, uh, to say that it's okay here. Um <laughs> <laughs> it's called Spectacle. The website is uh, spectacleapp.com. Uh, it's Mac only, though I'm sure there are similar ones uh, to this on Windows and Linux. And basically what it is, it's a window organizer. So I'm a heavy user of multiple spaces on my Mac. That's uh, uh, the Mac OS name for virtual desktops. So you know, I'll have one program on one desktop, another program on another desktop, another program on another one. But sometimes I want multiple windows from multiple apps or even multiple windows from the same app, all visible on one screen. And, you know, you can move your, your windows around and, uh, and resize them to fit. But, um, but with Spectacle, you, if it's running, you set it up to, to launch on login and it gives you little, um, little glasses up in your menu bar. And you can then choose to move the, uh, the currently active window either to the left half of the screen, the right half, bottom half, top half, um, thirds of the screens. You can center them, full screen them, upper left corner, whatever. You can assign hotkeys to those. Uh, so currently I'm, talking about this because I'm actually using it right now. I've got, uh, I opened up a couple different web browsers. I've got Safari and Chrome open, and I also have uh, Slack open. And so the main information I wanted was going to be in Safari. So I pushed that to the left half of my screen. Slack, I didn't need so much. I just wanted to see what was at the end. So I pushed that in the upper right. And then uh, Chrome, where we have, where we're recording this, uh, this segment, is down in the lower right. So I can see all these things laid out and it's just a couple keystrokes away. Uh, there are a number of different Mac apps that, uh, that do the same sort of thing. Probably the best known one is called Moom, M-O-O-M. Uh, but uh, Spectacle is really nice in that it's free and also the source code is up on GitHub in case you're interested in seeing how they did it or possibly improving it yourself. Wow, that's cool. I, I've heard of apps that do that before, and I just—I mean, just today when I um, when I post a podcast episode, I, I have to have four different windows open, and they're all Safari windows. And I usually, when I'm on my multi-screen display, I'll have all four of them open at once. And I'm—I'm I'm meticulously, for some reason, I spend a lot of seconds of my day uh, trying to make sure that the window is exactly half of the screen, and then then I cop then I open a new one and then it's and when it's off by just a few millimeters oh my god it just irritates the crap out of me so take those seconds every time i do that 
<laughs> yeah, it does me too. It's a really, really oh my, God. my OCD to try to get yeah. something just perfect. So, so this is a, a very quick and easy way to, to get it to the pixel perfection middle of the screen. Nice, nice. And you know, that might seem, I think that might seem a little bit uh, frivolous to some people, but if you are constantly, I mean, I'm constantly doing that and I'm constantly reorganizing my stuff. And if I were to be able to take away those seconds, aggregate it out over the course of the year, I mean, that probably saves me a lot of time, a lot of time I could spend, you know, making another cup of coffee. So and that's way more important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, it's not so much the time saved as just the uh, the organization it allows me to really quickly and easily yeah. lay out what I want to work on right now. So I still use it side by side with the uh, with the virtual desktops with spaces, but uh, it then becomes each screen is its own project. It's it's all self contained. Everything that I want to see is right there, visible and quickly easily accessible. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. All right. Well, I think that's uh, I think that's about it then. Um, that's it for this episode. Again, check out the links in the show notes if you want to grab a copy of Owned. Uh, it's actually a pretty easy read. Um, it's a it's a good book. And the first few chapters, I will tell you, will scare the crap out of you and you'll go around turning things off probably in your house. However, <laughs> um, you know, it all, it all kind of comes around. I don't want to, it's not, it's not too scary. So, um, no, well, he, we didn't bring this up, but he ends the book with uh, laying out what he envisions right. as a new way of, uh, of viewing property uh, and ownership, hence the title, of, uh, of our devices and our data on those devices. Mm-hmm. And so it, it ends actually on a positive note, but it starts out scary, gives you a history of how things got scary, and then tries to work its way through <laughs> how to unscary them. <laughs> That's right. How to unscary them. I like that word. That's good. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's about all we've got this week. Uh, join us next week, and we'll bring you some more great podcasts. Thanks a lot, Paul, for being on. Thanks, Chris. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at arcpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.